Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment is from the Goldberg Variations, BWV 988, specifically the 18th movement. All right, so this is our first foray into the Goldberg Variations. Certainly it's not our last, I'm sure. Yeah. What it is, uh, for the uninitiated, is it's a monumental keyboard work. And the general idea is that there was a beautiful keyboard slow piece called an aria that is played at the beginning. And then Bach took that aria, specifically the bass line and the pattern of chords, and stretched it out into a bunch of different variations of that. And it goes on, and that's the Goldberg Variations. And each one is uh, different than the last, and each one has a different concept behind it. we'll explore more of the general idea of the Goldberg Variations as we come back to it in a future time. But for right now, it's time to look closely at one sort of unassuming little section of the Goldberg Variations, which is maybe my favorite. Definitely has one of my moments of Bach in it, for sure. The Goldberg Variations are filled with many, many complex experiments by Bach of counterpoint and things like that. Among those are the canons, and there are several canons in the Goldberg Variations. And we've talked about fugues and stuff like that. We talked about canons as well when we we used row, row, row your boat as the example. That's a canon, right? That's like one yeah. part beginning, a second part beginning at a later time, but with the same music. And so that's what's going to happen here, except it's not quite so boring as the second part starting at the exact same pitch, right? We know that it's going to be a little bit more interesting than that. And some of the canons and the Goldberg variations are quite complicated. But this one I love because it's actually, at its bare bones, very simple. So a canon has two parts, right? But let's think of it a different way. Instead of thinking of it in the row, row, row your boat way, let's think of them as being together first and then separating. So a canon could be like Alex and I are two people, so I could start row, row, row your boat. Alex could start four counts later or eight counts later or whatever it is. But it could be a while later that he starts. But it also could just be the next note, right? Alex, you could just start the very next note. Yeah. But the composer has to work out whether or not that works, right, with the music. Because maybe it wouldn't work if you started on the very next note. If you start at a time interval that's too small, it won't work. 
But what if we look at this a different way and just think how something like this is constructed from the most simple, basic bare bones? And it's basically just this. Four notes like that. That's the first phrase. It has a second answering phrase, which complements it. So a basic two-part structure where the first one starts on the most stable note and then moves, in this case, steps down to another note that's not quite as final. And then a second phrase, which starts a little open-ended and then closes the whole thing up at the end. That sounds so simple. How, how do you make a canon out of this and make it really interesting? Well, each canon in the Goldberg Variations is not just a canon. It's a canon at a different musical interval, right? And so Bach also writes them in order. And so by this time in the Goldberg Variations, we're up to the sixth, which means, like if you can picture a piano keyboard, if you were to start on C with one part, then the next part would start up to up at A, C, D, E, F, G, A. One note away is called a second, you know, one in this case, white note away, and so on. So that musical interval of a sixth is what the canon is going to be here. So that'd be like, row, row, row your boat, one person starting on C, the second person coming and starting on a different note, which is not how you sing that, right? (laughs) That would be too hard. (laughs) That would create a completely different musical effect, which may or may not work. Depending on if you got the interval right as the composer, you'd have to really work these things out to make sure they work. Yeah, it's all, like you said, it's all dependent on when you start that second entrance, right, of the canon. If you can pick an interval that works and then start the second entrance at the right time so that the intervals match up in the right way and also make it harmonically work you know, together, then you've got something that's workable. Right, and I think that Bach did something here for the canon at the sixth, that is so brilliantly simple. He kind of did away with the idea of worrying about treating it as this complicated counterpoint. I think what he did here was that he just took harmony in sixths and made and delayed one voice a little bit and then made it into a canon that way. The way I know this is you can just play these two parts that are in canon and you can uncover it for yourself. It's going to help to have the tiniest bit of musical context here What you hear, what you heard in the intro to this episode and what you hear with this canon is a musical texture that's like this. Two higher parts, which are canon. So one of them starts and the second one answers. And then there is a freely composed bass line underneath it. So the bass part that is being played by the left hand of the harpsichordist that plays for this, by the way, for this entire like recording of the Goldberg variations, Jean Rondeau, who plays the entire thing in this wonderfully shot video. It's really beautiful. And he plays this very fast. He plays this movement so fast. Very impressive. Even though it's going by really fast, you can still kind of make this out if you kind of slow it down here, which is what we're trying to do here today. So there's that top part, which we already showed you. But what if I added a harmony to that? That's where the concept of this movement comes in handy, because it just happens to be that the musical interval of a sixth is already a very harmonious interval. So let's try adding sixths to everything I just played, uh, a sixth lower than everything I played.
course, that's going to sound good. Anything in sixths like that is going to sound fine. Yeah, anything in sixths or thirds, which mm-hmm. is the like inverse of sixths, it usually sounds great. Yeah, those are the like lovely sounding duet type of intervals. And in fact, thirds and sixths, which are basically backwards thirds in a, in a manner of speaking, um, are actually the only intervals where that's legal, right, Alex? Like in this style of music. Yeah, like fourths, it's fine, but iffy. And then the inverse of that fifths, you cannot do the way you did. You cannot do them in parallel like that in Baroque music. It's not allowed. Yeah, and when Alex and I talk about the rules of counterpoint needing to not be broken, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. When voices move in parallel, they need to move as pairs. They need to move in thirds and sixths. And that's actually the only way they can move with some exceptions with the fourth. But it's not allowed for them to move other ways. And all you have to do is play it on the piano and you'll totally see why. You don't want to move in parallel seconds with a pair of voices because it sounds like this. Two clustered together. And sevenths is the same issue. Way too much of a modern sound than would have been called for in that time. And then you've got, like Alex, you said fifths. That's the classic one that all the music students know about. No parallel fifths. Right, you get a bad grade on your music theory homework if you add parallel fifths in there. Right, but often the actual reason why is not taught by music theory teachers, so you know you have a good music theory teacher if they actually explain why this is not allowed. And if if they don't, make sure you ask them. But we're going to tell you anyway. <laughs> so the the answer is because when you play fifths, when you play two parts and they move in parallel fifths, It sounds like this. Most of the intervals I played were the interval called a perfect fifth there. And almost every move I just played was illegal. And the reason why is because they don't sound like two parts anymore. It's really as simple as that. They basically sound like one thing moving up and down. And that's because the interval of a fifth is so open and hollow that it almost makes them sound the same. Like in power chords with a guitar. Power chords might be open fifths and octaves and really open sounding things like that. But when you play power chords on the guitar, you're not hearing those as different notes of a guitar. You're just hearing them all vertically, right? You're hearing a power chord, right? And you're not picking out all the voices. Yeah, you, the, the point of that is not to have three voices that I just played. The point of that is to have chords, right? This is one thing mu- in terms of musical texture. But in this Goldberg variation, we have... The two parts that are in canon, the leader and then the follower, is a good way to describe them. And then that third part, which is just a bass line that's been written freely. And that's it. But they are three different parts. So let's go back to these two parts that are in canon. Before we even talk about them being in canon, I'm talking about them being in harmony. Then the next step that Bach did was he just shifted one of them over, one big beat. By doing that, it managed to stay within the rules, and it sounds much more interesting, and it creates some interesting dissonances, but they are prepared and resolved within the rules. They're done correctly. Momentarily, there are dissonances, right? Now there's a seventh but it collapses nicely and resolves down to a sixth, things like that. If you were to do a musical analysis of this, that's what you would find. You would find that everything is legal here. And then Bach makes it one step more interesting by adding ornamentation. 
he makes it a little more beautiful by adding some little tiny flowery notes that move in between. Except that everything he did in that bottom part, he had to repeat one beat later in the next part. It's almost like it's almost like all of the free will was taken away from that second part because it is really just an echo or a shadow of that first part. And because of that, it's hard to compose music like this, but it's also, in a way, it gives you such strict rules that you have to follow. That's kind of nice, you know? Yeah, a lot of things about composing and anything creative where if you... Oh man, I think it was way back on episode four when we first talked about this. We were talking about the Magnificat and the limitations of the trumpet, the Baroque trumpet as an instrument. And it's like these kind of limitations that even if you just set them for yourselves, like what Bach did with this, he set these limitations himself about these canons. And any of these limitations that you give yourself are great for creativity. that in just in all of Bach's work basically that the forms that he wanted to write in or that he was tasked to write in those were the forms that allowed his creativity to blossom in those ways we sometimes find ourselves at least I do in my creative work in our present day thinking like I'm stuck, I don't know how to begin, or something like that. You know, the blank page problem with the writer. Yeah. Bach wrote so much music throughout his life, we don't know if he experienced that and just simply had time to still write all the music while still having slow periods, but probably not, and that the reason is because of stuff like this. Because he worked in this in these rigorous styles, it didn't leave any room for him to, to wonder what to do. Because the thing is, when you have to write something as strict as a canon, you really don't have any more time to worry about like what you're going to do because what you're going to do is so strictly ordained that now you're just worrying about how do I do it? You know? Yeah, it's more like solving a puzzle. And I'm not trying to say this to make it seem less of a less of a feat, but it's more like solving a puzzle than it is like painting something on a wall, like just like taking a blank canvas and painting something, right? There's a there's a free creativity to that, but the idea of like solving a Sudoku or something like that, like that's a little bit more what this is like. Now this is definitely still creative. He's coming up with these these melodies on his own and he's coming up with his own variations and things like that. But like we said before, there's a little bit of a puzzle element to this. And it, it really appeals to people who like puzzles and who like logic, you know, people who like computers and computer science and programming and that type of thing. This is why the music of Bach is really for the sort of intellectual type. Yeah, and it's not about complication. It's not about how complicated the music is. It's, right. It's not about that. It's about how perfectly mechanically functional the music is, almost like a little ticking clock, you know? Yeah. Like the episode 20 cantata fugue is a perfect example. That permutation fugue is almost a thing that runs itself, you know? And 
almost like a program, like you were saying. And this one is a lot like that, except that you can tell it's very much a written-out piece of art, but also that second part isn't. That first part is what's written, and it's almost like the second part is a shadow of the first part, except that we know that for all these canons, Bach had to just, he had to make sure that it worked, because if there was ever one little part where it didn't work, you'd have to start the first part over, right? You can't change one part without changing the other, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting exercise. And like you said, Alex, it's a lot like a game or a puzzle where one move you might make might have an immediate consequence with something else. Yeah, but you kind of put it in a better way, I think, back in episode 22, uh, back in episode 20 also, is that, yes, it's like a program, but also back then you said it was like nature. It's almost like it was ordained for these notes to to go where they were going, right? Yeah, it was like it was always going to be that way. Yeah, and, and the reason I like the nature analogy is because, in a way, nature is sort of, you know, I don't want to say programmed because it's a weird, it's a weird way to to put it. But nature, the the forces of nature work in a certain way that's that can be predictable, but is also beautiful. So I think that's an I think that's a neat analogy when you're talking about Bach, especially. Yeah, and and this canon is actually a perfect example of a mixture of automatic forces at work and creation because the third part, which he wrote certainly last. Uh, the baseline is well. No, I can't even say that really because the baseline is pretty Goldberg inspired. So, um, but that is a free creation for the most part. The baseline is not part of the canon. So even though it fits the Goldberg theme, it's still not bound by the same rules. So it clearly is artistic. It's a little of both. It is, and, and you can listen to it in any way, and that's the thing, too. We, we always talk about these technical aspects of this music, but it can absolutely be listened to by someone who doesn't see all that in the music and approaches it from a purely emotional standpoint. That's not a wrong way to listen to this music. I got the great experience of um, seeing this live, performed by Benjamin Allard, who I believe is from Canada, Anyway, I did see it in Canada. It was in Vancouver. And um, it was just a great concert, you know, just kind of an intimate thing where there's just, it's just a concert of one soloist playing the harpsichord for the whole time. And I was having the program notes was very helpful. Like I knew what was coming, like, oh, this is the, the every three movements, there's a canon, you know, each canon is a different interval. Yeah. And I was into it in that sense. And I I later heard this piece again and, and live and, and just you know, tried to switch off my brain in in that sense and then kind of just approach it more without thinking of that stuff. And it's really cool how those two experiences were like, it's like two totally different things. Yeah. But it was still, it was still valuable in, in both ways. And I think, I think either way you come at it, it's, it's, it's viable. I mean, either way you come at it, it's, it's not a wrong way to listen to it. Yeah. But since we are here to explain some of the aspects of the canon to you today, speaking of ways to listen to it, I will leave you with a strategy for you know figuring this out as you listen. It's like this. The highest thing you hear is the follower, right? So that means that the part that causes the events of the second part to happen is lower 
That means that it can be a little tricky to hear the interplay of the two parts and why one thing causes another thing to happen. And it's so soon, you know, like as soon as you're hearing the first part, that lower part, do something, right after you're hearing that upper second part, do that thing, but higher, right? Basically one beat later, it feels like. Yeah. And the fact is the music flows so beautifully that you could go the whole time without noticing this, right? And I'm sure nobody did on their first listen of this unless they were handed, you know, a program note or something like that. But that's why I'm challenging you, the listener, to maybe listen to this the first time and don't worry, just listen to it and just enjoy it. Don't give yourself the burden of trying to figure it out. But then the second time, maybe, or the third time, go back and think, let me see if I can hear the canon this time. And yeah. my, my advice for you would be to try to keep track of those two parts. And if the video sometimes helps, you can tell it's his right hand that's playing this, most of this stuff. And that first part, the first note, you hear one note by itself. That is the leader. Then when you hear a part enter above it, that is the follower. So try to keep track of those two and try to see how one is just slightly shifted from the other. how when that first one does something, the second one follows. Try to feel that. Because there's something unbelievably profound about a canon that's so perfect as this to me, and that is that music is a music is a temporal art, and you know, music is art across time. And it's stuff like this that I think makes that so powerful. You can play chords all day and have wonderful sequence of chords and beautiful chords that sound rich and colorful. And you can play instruments which are beautiful and colorful. But only with a constructed piece of music like this can you experience the temporal nature of music, the way that music flows through time in something like this. I just think this is so cool. It's such a cool exploration of the concept of how time flows because in music that is not organized this way, but is organized much more freely. You, you never know what's gonna happen in the very next instant, and that's fine. You're being taken for a ride, right? And yeah. things are happening, twisting and turning. Like Think of like a film score or something. Like, things are moving, things will take a quick left turn and a right turn. Yeah, they're supposed to you surprise know. you sometimes. Yeah. But yet music has this way, music has this ability to be like this instead, this canon, which is actually like, it's almost like a miniature time travel, you know, because you're, yeah. you're seeing into the future for, <laughs> yeah. for a second. Yeah. I don't know if I've just been watching too much Christopher Nolan movies recently, but I just love the idea that you can gain a slightly different experience of time by realizing that music is constructed across time and people have thought of music in this way that can be you know stratified across a couple of layers in this case just two simple voices 
across across this. Yeah, and if you're listening to this movement as part of the larger work, you are already really familiar with the, sort of the harmonic structure of each of these movements. It's all basically exactly the same. They're all variations, like you said, Christian, on that very first movement. So by the time you get here, we're halfway through this 30 movements. We're a little more than halfway through, and you kind of know what's coming harmonically. So that also gives you the sense of like knowing what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the little—it's like a little miniature time travel. Or I think of it like this: imagine a imagine a line of a, the progress bar moving to 100% if you're downloading something or whatever, or just like the little line that moves to the right as you're listening to a piece of music, showing you how far you are in the music. Right? Instead of just a a little vertical line, it's like you're kind of stretching that line out into a little rectangle or something. That's like, hey, I can see I can see a couple seconds in the future of this and the past as it goes and the past as it goes along. Instead of a little line, it's, you know, instead of a little vertical line, it's, it's a little, it's a little chunk now. It's a little rectangle. You're, you're getting a little, a slight glimpse of eternity here. Yeah. Yeah, of the idea of being able to see all times, right? There's a little bit, everybody kind of talks about, not everybody, but people kind of talk about the sublime in music and being able, and having these moments of like, wow, there's something that Bach and Vivaldi and Handel and these composers of the Baroque era especially get at with this music that's so elegantly put together that gives you a taste of the sublime or of heaven or something and it's like I think what people are are experiencing when they're when they're feeling that is that is this right is this idea of like part of it is the time aspect it's like mm-hmm. seeing all the t- all this time in an, in a non-linear way you kind of feel like you're getting a little glimpse of what it's like to experience eternity. In an ironic way, I guess, it's not, it's a glimpse, right? It's a short time that you're getting this <laughs> this glimpse of eternity, which doesn't really make sense, but that's kind of why it's mysterious and wonderful. Yeah, but, but music does have that power, and I think it's one of music's most unique powers. You know, like, it is well within the power of a painting to show you color and beauty and, uh, you know, things like that. But music ha- is painted across time and therefore music can give us different aspects and perspectives on time and that's just the most interesting thing i think to me about about music and now here is the 18th movement of the goldberg variations the canon on the sixth interval Thank you. 
If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this work, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of the Goldberg Variations by Jean Rondeau for the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also check us out on our Facebook page, Instagram, and our website, amomentofbach.com. And if you rate us and review us, that helps us out a lot. What are we doing next week, Alex? Next week, we're going to look at one of the most beloved arias that Bach ever wrote. It's from the St. Matthew Passion, BWV 244, and it's the aria Erbarma Dich. Until next time, enjoy those moments. <laughs> <laughs>